This is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald pro proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men from his army 
to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into a burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of, from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or languages that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, when the disciples walked with Jesus up that mountain, they knew he was someone remarkable, but they didn't know the full extent of it. And so much was clouded from their view, so much is clouded from our view. And yet in a remarkable way, you made them see something of who Jesus really is. And you spoke and you said, this is my son, listen to him. And Father, in that moment, by your word, you cut through the fog, you cut through the blinders that was on the eyes of the disciples, and you allowed them to see something of Christ's glory. And Father, we ask that you might grant us to listen to Jesus now. And that in the same way you would cut through the fog, that you would cut through the blinders, that you would cut through and cut down and set aside everything that gets in the way of us seeing Jesus clearly. And will you make us see his glory? And will you grant us to see the emptiness of alternatives? And will you make us free by knowing him? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Um, and uh, we're going to look at that Daniel reading, continuing our series in Daniel. It's a long reading. We're going to have to look at all of it. We're going to take two weeks on it, though. So, uh, you know, um, uh, we get two uh, bites at the cherry or something like that. Um, if you are if you were raised in church, then you are familiar with this reading, right? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Jewish men in the fiery furnace. It's a classic. Um, and if you did not grow up in church, well, hey, this is a classic. You may have heard of it. And if you haven't heard of it, um, welcome. It's, it's a fun story. And it's a remarkable story because uh, these three men, I mean, it's odd. It's an odd story. But it's a compelling story because uh, these three men, these three Jewish men, they stand up against the crowd. Uh, they stand up against the tyrant. Uh, they, they, uh, they follow through with their convictions, they're ready to go to the flames, and at the last minute, they're rescued by God, they're vindicated. Um, the tyrant uh, is put uh, down from his place, and, and the three guys actually get promoted in the end. I mean, what's not to love? Um, it's a great story. And very often when we hear this story, um, at least as Christians, if you grew up in church, I'm sure you've heard um, this story as, hey, listen, don't you want to be like these three men? Don't you want to be as courageous as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Um, you need to follow their example. Follow their example. Uh, and um, you've, you're familiar with that, right? Um, and that is a good sermon for us to listen to. But that's not today's sermon. Uh, we'll pick that up more next week when we have the second uh, crack at it. Today, we're going to focus more on the tyrant. We're going to focus more on Nebuchadnezzar. And in particular, we're going to focus on how Nebuchadnezzar relates to power and how God's grace comes and topples his addiction to power. Now, part of the reason we're going to focus there is that the camera angle in the telling of this story focuses primarily on Nebuchadnezzar. At the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping this idol. It's an idol of himself and of his own tyrannical power. And he's requiring everyone else to do the same thing. At the end of the story, however, he begins to bless God, the God of Israel, because that, this is a God who remarkably can rescue these three men. There's a remarkable change that begins to occur in Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the end of the change. There's more in the stories to come, but it's the beginning of the change of Nebuchadnezzar. And so we're going to look at how God, by his grace, topples the idol of human power. That's what I want to show you. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar. Come with me into the story. Take a look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, or an idol of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth was 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plains of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Now, we need to fill in a little bit of a backstory here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this giant, absolutely huge, uh, uh, image, statue, and it's important that you see that this is not just a Nebuchadnezzar commissioning some fine art. Okay, there's nothing wrong with fine art. It's a really, really good thing. But that's not what this story is about. Uh, this statue, this image, 
is probably a statue of himself. And it's not just a portrait. This statue that Nebuchadnezzar puts up, it's huge, is, it's like a totem. It, 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 it's, a, it's a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's power and of the power of his regime and of his empire. And let me explain why we are pretty confident that that's the case. Um, one chapter before this, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, we talked about this two weeks ago. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream? And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant statue. And it's a statue made of various kinds of metals. At the top of the statue, it's made of gold. Uh, there's some other metals in the kind of torso area, and the feet are made of clay and iron uh, mixed badly together. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone, it's like a meteorite coming out of the sky, hits this giant statue at its feet, and the whole statue comes tumbling down. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up with a cold sweat, frightened by what this dream might mean. And in the story, Daniel uh, comes, and Daniel's able to interpret the meaning of the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And it, we find out that on the one hand, it's an encouraging dream. It's an encouraging dream because uh, Nebuchadnezzar finds out, and Daniel's very clear about this, that um, this statue represents Nebuchadnezzar's regime and the regimes which will follow him. And it's clear that God wants him to know that God gave Nebuchadnezzar his power as a gift. That's an encouraging thing. Nebuchadnezzar found out that in some way, his power was a gift from God. But the dream was also a terrible warning, a grave warning. And it was a grave warning because at the end of the dream, the statue gets destroyed by a stone, and the stone represents God's own kingdom. And so the message of the dream was this, Nebuchadnezzar your power is a gift from God, but you better use it well. Your gift, your power is a gift from God, but you better steward it well, because you're going to be judged, because there's a bigger king, and his name is the Lord of Israel. Now, keep that in your mind and come back to this reading, because immediately Nebuchadnezzar fashions this model of the statue in his dream. And so it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar has drawn exactly the wrong conclusion from his dream. Instead of seeing the power that has been entrusted to him as a good gift to be used and stewarded well, instead, Nebuchadnezzar begins to worship his own power. He creates an image of his power, an image of himself, and he begins to bow down and worship it, and he requires his whole regime to worship it as well. That's what power, that's what idols are. Idols are when you take a good gift that God has given you, and you begin to seek it for its own sake. You begin to serve it for its own sake. It begins to replace God in your life. That's what an idol is. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing and it's the idol of power. Let me just pause here and observe a couple things. Power, Emmanuel, can be a really good gift from God. All of us have spheres of influence and a degree of agency in this world. It can be a good gift from God. But power can also be addictive 
And it's a little bit like this. Imagine power is someone who is whispering a message in our ears. It's a little bit like this. It's almost like that snake at the beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 3. It's almost like power comes and whispers in our ears something like this. It says, hey, listen, everything you want, says power whispering in our ears, everything you want, I can give you. If you, want, if you have me, says power to us whispering, if you have me, I'll make you produce enough. If you have me, I'll, ha I'll make you achieve enough. If you have me, I'll, have you, I'll make sure you accomplish enough. If you have me, says power whispering in our ears, I'll make sure that everybody admires you and everybody envies you. You need me, says power whispering in your ear. And I'll make you a little bit like God himself. And then the message begins to shift. And power begins to whisper in our ears something a little bit different. It says, you'll never really be satisfied without me. Therefore, you better seek me, says power, whispering to our souls. You better seek me. You better accumulate me. You better sacrifice for me. You better bow down to me, says power, whispering in your ear, and I'll make you great. And if you don't have me, you're nothing. Power can echo the serpent at the beginning of the Bible, says, I can make you like God. And another way to think of it is that power can, uh, can get an addictive hold upon your soul. It's like a narcotic. And that's when it becomes your idol. It can have an addictive power. But the second thing is this, when you bow down to the pursuit of power, or when power becomes the object of your trust, I'll be okay when I have control. What happens is that power begins to disfigure your soul. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this golden statue is his idol. It's the outward projection of his inward commitment to his own power. And as he uh, devotes himself to his own power and gets everybody else to do the same, it disfigures his soul. Uh, there's a biographer called Robert Caro, and uh, he's a biographer who specializes in how power works in powerful people. And one of the things that he says is this, he says, uh, when he's describing this particularly powerful individual in the 20th century, he says, uh, when this person got power, power began to work, quote, the strange alchemy upon his soul, amplifying certain aspects of his character, diminishing other aspects of his character. And over time, this particular person began seeking power as an end in itself. That's what power can do to us when we make it our idol. And you can see the disfiguring of Nebuchadnezzar's soul in his self-absorption. Can you see it? You can see it in his narcissism. And you can see it in his cruelty. But look at the reading again. Because you can see the same dynamic, not just in the individual, Nebuchadnezzar, but at a collective level. In the satraps and the Chaldeans and the, you know, that really long list. The civil service. Think about the story. The, the king calls his whole civil service, all, all his 
all his guys. And he demands that they worship the same idol that Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping. He, he requires them to bow down to his power. And they all of them do it. Now, why do they uh, bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's power? Well, they're afraid of dying because <laughs> there's a threat there. But it's not just that. The group in, those, in verse 2, and that's repeated throughout, those aren't just regular citizens. Those are leaders. That is to say, those are people with power themselves, to some extent. Less power than Nebuchadnezzar, but power. And their power is derived from the king's power. Can you see that? And that means that their path to power, their path to higher power, is uh, it, the only way they can do that is if they ride the coattails of the king. And so when they bow down to the king's idol, they're not just obeying the king, they're, they're in a sense sharing in the addiction of the king. Um, it, they're bowing not just to the king's image, but they're bowing down to their own pursuit of power as well. What I'm trying to show you is that the addiction to power uh, the trust and the belief that power is a path to get us what we need most, it happens not just in individuals, it can become a collective power, a collective pattern. So the whole group of people end up being controlled by the same idol. And it can become a normalized pattern of behavior within a society, within a whole culture. And Emmanuel it is urgent that we learn to discern it. Most of us were raised to achieve. Am I right? Uh, most of us were raised, trained from a very early age to uh, achieve and produce and accomplish and to make it. That might be why you moved to New York City if you didn't grow up here. And that's not wrong. Excellence is a good thing. It's a gift. But the problem is that that training can sometimes uh, create footholds for the addiction to power or the idolatry of power to link its fingers into our souls. Or think of it differently. Think about um, your fears. What is it that you fear the most? I have no idea what you fear the most. But see if any of these hit the, hit the mark. I am deeply afraid of losing control of my life. I am deeply afraid of failing in my career. I am deeply afraid about any kind of an uncertain future. I am scared to death of finding myself just relegated to obscurity or insignificance. I don't know if any of that hits the mark. It, but if it does, those fears in themselves, they, they're quite natural. But again, those fears can sometimes trigger us to latch onto power or to control or to try to uh, arrange our life so that we feel that we are calling the shots, that we can do it our way, and that that's going to make it all work. And sometimes when we begin to latch onto an idolatry of power or an addiction to power, sometimes it's not even our own power individually. Sometimes we pursue power like these second-tier leaders did. Sometimes we pursue power by uh, latching on to somebody that we greatly admire. Maybe we envy them. 
And we tether ourselves to that person and we sort of graft power off of them. Have you ever noticed that? That's, friends, this is part of how tyrants work. This is how demigods uh, uh, gather a following. Uh, this is how toxic pastors and political leaders and all kinds of bad leaders uh, keep the devotion of people whom they abuse. Can you see how it works? And just like power addiction distorts the character of the individual, power addiction ends up uh, distorting the character of whole communities. Take a look at verse 8. So just after the civil service bows to the idol, immediately they turn on the Jewish community. Verse 8, they maliciously accuse the Jewish community. Verse 12, they single out three gentlemen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 12, they, they tell on them, and they say, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They're not bowing down to the same idol. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Now stop and just, just think about this for a second. Why did they tell on these three Jewish men? They didn't need to do that. Why did they do it? Well, friends, worshiping power distorts our character. And in particular, worshiping power expresses itself regularly in cruelty. Uh, Robert Caro, that same biographer, uh, when he's analyzing power, he says this, power is being able to laugh at people who oppose you and to laugh at them with impunity, to antagonize them without fear of reprisal. Can you hear the cruelty? And in our story, there's no laughter, but laughter and violence can both be expressions of an addiction to power. Can you see a little bit about how addiction to power can work at an individual level, at a collective level? Don't forget, power can be a good gift. The problem is our hearts tend to latch onto it as if it's our master, and it ends up it's a cruel master, and it's a cruel master that makes us cruel. It can do that at an individual level. It can do that at a collective level. And Emmanuel, we've got to be able to recognize it. The trap of idolizing power is dangerous, and it's a danger that surrounds us. Can you see that? Why are we so tribal today? Why do we idolize the great achiever or the genius leader even when they're abusive? Why? Why do we laugh so freely and, and revile so fiercely on social media? Why do we do both at the same time? Why are we cruel? And more importantly, how can we be free? Well, the answer to that, second, that last question, how can we be free, has to do with grace. Go back to the reading. Nebuchadnezzar actually gives us a clue, <clears throat> ironically, because when the king interrogates the three Jewish men, they don't budge, and the king loses it. In verse 15, he asks the question, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Even in that question, he's still worshiping his own power, but ironically, he's asking the right question. 
And he throws the Jewish men into the furnace, and then something happens that begins to dismantle Nebuchadnezzar's addiction to his own power. It doesn't finally, it's going to take a little bit more, but it begins the dismantling work. And the thing that begins to dismantle him is something called grace. Look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. I'm not sure they ever said anything other than yes. But, and he answered and said to them, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Emmanuel, that scene is a perfect image of what Christians call grace. What do I mean? Well, gr grace can be described a lot of ways. Here's one. Grace is when God meets us in our weakness and rescues us by his power and not our power. And that's what God does in this scene. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to worship power. They know who they belong to. They refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar's God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his cruelty, in his devotion to his own cruel master, he throws them in the fire. So what God can possibly save them? Well, it ends up the God of Israel can save them. But the God of Israel doesn't save them the way Nebuchadnezzar might expect. The God of Israel saves them by grace. God, in his grace, enters the fire, meets them in their weakness, and rescues them through his power and not their own power. And that work of grace subverts coercive power. That work of grace topples the lie of the idle power. Apparently, God sent an angel of some sort. We don't know all the details about who that fourth person is. We have some ideas. But the point is that God, through this messenger, enters into the peril of his people. God enters the furnace through this messenger. It's not that God kept these three men out of the fire. It's that he met them inside the fire. And when God entered the fire with his people, he rescues these three Jewish men. But at the same time, he nullifies Nebuchadnezzar's power. How does he ne ne nullify Nebuchadnezzar's power? There's three ways. First, God's grace unmasks the lie of power's idolatry. Remember, um, power is always saying, uh, I'll give you everything you want. I'll give you control. I'll give you power. And Nebuchadnezzar expressed that. He, th he thought he had power over these three men. He throws them in the fire. In response, God's grace entered the fire and canceled the effects of the fire, which demonstrated, even to Nebuchadnezzar, that God's grace is stronger than his power. H human power and the idolatry of power rests on the lie that it wins all the time. And God's grace comes in and says, and defeats it, and unmasks its lie by showing that God's grace is stronger. And I want you to see God's grace, Emmanuel, because only God's grace can free us from the lie the power uses to hold us captive. So first, God's grace unmasks the lie of human power because it's stronger, despite all appearances. But secondly, God's grace offers amnesty to God's enemies. Remember that power addiction always leads to cruelty. Well, God's grace 
leads to a kindness, kindness even to the enemy. Notice how both Nebuchadnezzar and his cronies, they all see the miracle. They all see how God rescues. Why does God let them see the miracle? Why does God let them see the rescue? He lets them see the miracle and the rescue so that they have an opportunity to shift their allegiance, so that they can have the opportunity to receive amnesty. Grace leads to undeserved kindness. And that's the second way it undermines the power of power's idolatry. Grace counters the lie of human power with the truth of God's strength, and it counters the cruelty of power by the gift of kindness and amnesty. And again, I want you to see the power of God's grace because that's the only way we're going to be able to discern and stand back from and abstain from the idolatry of power. And if you really want to see the power of God's grace, you've got to look at Jesus Christ. Uh, in our gospel reading, we got to see the transfiguration, how Jesus, uh, uh, his glory was displayed to his disciples, and God says, this is my son, listen to him. He's saying, this is my leader. This is the one who really has true power, incandescent, infinite power. But do you know where Jesus displayed that power most fully? When he entered the weakness of his people and rescued them not by their power but by his power which is to say you see the power of jesus christ displayed most beautifully when he's dying upon the cross because there when he dies upon the cross he defeats the idolatry of human power he died and it looked like he was defeated but three days later he rose again and the resurrection of jesus christ is an eternal witness an eternal proclamation that says human power does not win in the end, that the lie of human idolatry and human power must be unmasked because Jesus Christ defeated even death. So look at the cross and you'll see how grace undermines the lie of human power. But then from the cross, Jesus Christ also extends amnesty and kindness and not cruelty. Because through the cross, Jesus offers forgiveness to his worst enemies. Even the soldier who put him up on the cross looked at Jesus upon the cross and said, when he died, surely this is the Son of God. Even he could see it. From the cross of Christ, the lie of human power is displayed. And from the cross of Christ, the cruelty of human power is set aside and replaced with pardon and amnesty. And that's an amnesty and a pardon you've got to accept. You've got to consent to it, have you? And when you do, and when that pardon and that amnesty and that kindness in place of cruelty reaches down into your soul, and when you taste and see that it is good, then it will begin to transform you from, your, from the inside out. And that is the last way that grace triumphs over human power. Because when God's grace re uh, reworks the deep operating system of your soul, then you'll be freed to no longer grasp onto power as an end in and of itself. You'll be freed to serve people, to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. Power then will become the gift that it was always meant to be. You'll be able to act like these three men who can stand up and serve their nation and serve the empire even by abstaining from its idolatries. You'll be able to sacrifice yourself 
in a way that echoes Jesus' own sacrifice. And this is a world that needs that kind of character. This is a world that needs that kind of sacrifice and service. And the only way to get it is through the grace of Jesus Christ. So look at the grace of God. It's stronger than human power. And don't forget it. Look at the grace of Christ. It's more kind than human power. And don't forget it. Look at the grace of Christ and let it transform you so that you will be able to serve like Christ. And we'll pick it up from there next week. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.